that. Uh, our text this morning is 2 Samuel uh, chapter 15. Uh, our congregation right now, for those who don't know, I know we have some visitors, and uh, we are on a journey making our way through this historic narrative of uh, Samuel, first and second Samuel. Uh, it traces the life of God's people, uh, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, who dwell in a particular land, that land between uh, the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea. Geographically, it's about the size of, what? guess what state you think it's the size of? New Jersey or Rhode Island. Yeah, it's about that big. It's, it's not a very large uh, landmass, but it's obviously at the center of a lot of things uh, in global affairs. Anyone know anything about Israel? Well, yeah, you've been watching the news. You know something about the Holy Land. Uh, and it would be a good exercise for all of us when we look at that to put ourselves in other people's shoes. To ask how hard it might be for them, for everyone involved, and we ought to pray for things humbly. Ask God for justice, mercy, and peace. There's plenty of things on the news, and we even see that Israeli flag. What's at the center of that blue and white flag? The Star of David. That's whose life we've been focused on, King David. That's just true. It might be worth repeating. I think it is. A couple of weeks ago, I said this. Do not, though, in thinking about these in terms of uh, you know, modern news and then opening up the Bible, do not confuse, conflate, or equate the Israel that is in the news, the modern geopolitical nation state that was founded back sometime in the 1950s. Don't confuse that with the, the people of God, Israel, in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And further, you should be asking, uh, what is the true or who is the true Israel of God? The, the scriptures clearly testify who are the people of God. And they come from every tongue, every tribe, every nation to form a new Israel, which is the global covenant community, the church, the king and the Messiah of, of which is who? Boy, this is, this is just about as much as I can tee it up. The, the king and the Messiah of the new Israel. You, the covenant community, is king? Thank you. King Jesus. But now, where we are in 2 Samuel is a thousand years before Jesus. The people of God in Israel, uh, a thousand years before Christ has come along. And that's now the 3,000. That's some fast math. 3,000 years going all the way back to when this took place. There were times when Israel was ruled by judges. Uh, and uh, at the, In fact, there's a whole book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, called the book of Judges. It does not end well because it ends with this verse. Uh, in those days in Israel, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's a, that's a, that's a recipe for a disaster, right? When there's no God, authority, no rule, People do what's right in their own eyes. This is a recipe for disaster. The people in the land told Samuel, the high priest, we want a king. And we want a king, not just any king. We want a king that's like the kings of the other nations. You sure about that, Samuel says? Yes. And Saul, what a great figure. Heads and shoulders taller than anyone. Handsome, uh, you know, broad-shouldered, impressive figure as he was. But God does not look at the outside the external, uh, it, God looks at the, nothing wrong with being handsome, not that I would know, but uh, nothing wrong with having a beautiful head of hair, not, not that I would know, but Absalom that we're reading about does. And God doesn't judge by the outside, God, God judges the heart. God wanted a man who's after his own heart, and that would be King David. So King David comes into uh, the picture, 
And uh, unfortunately, he is anointed by God. Saul, the great king, uh, this first king of Israel, uh, was, was a failure in many regards. He did not please God. He was, he was a man who struggled to trust God, and he was filled and, and uh, mixed with unbelief. And God said, my anointed will be David, and he didn't want David. Saul was jealous. It was his own son-in-law. He could have rejoiced, but he didn't. And David had to run away and be for many, many years in the wilderness in exile, uh, chase, uh, being chased and uh, with his entourage of mighty men. He was a warrior for the king. He loved the nation of Israel, but he had to be outside in exile for many years. Eventually, things shift, and uh, David is, uh, is able to come back in. Saul and Jonathan die, and, uh, and then, of course, David is chosen. Uh, initially for part of uh, Judah and then for the United uh, Kingdom. He is the head, uh, the king of Israel over this monarch that is established, that God promises his succession will carry on. David now at this point, his reign is 40 years. We're getting near the end of David's life, so he's close to 70 at this point. And yet, uh, you know, several chapters back and several years back, we know, we've already covered this, that he fell into great sin. Why? Because you start mixing things like pride and lust, and it doesn't go well. And David falls into sexual sin, and what happens? His desires take over, and he takes another man's wife, and then he takes another man's life. Nathan, back in chapter 12, uh, brings a curse over David. Your house will be divided. There will be great grief and, uh, and, and sorrow. David is forgiven. David is still uh, able to reign. David is a man still in, under God's favor to lead, but there would be consequence and chaos for his own family and for his country. And we look at David's his children, and they are corrupted um, in many ways. And one of his sons, Absalom, is, uh, excuse me, uh, Ab- well, they both are murderers, but uh, in, in, in many regards, Absalom are, are criminals. Absalom is one of his sons, and he is, a, he is guilty of exacting, taking out revenge for an evil deed done by Amnon, his half-brother. So David has the, these, two, these two sons. One takes the other's life. David has mixed emotions because he, he knows that both of them have corruption and unbelief. But, he's, uh, but he, of course, you know, is, is glad that Absalom is away and that Amnon is, is done. But nevertheless, he is not uh, acting. He's passive. David, in many respect, respects, has lost his voice as a leader. And I think this is very important uh, as we're about to read the text. It's important by way of review that in the previous chapter, we see in chapter 14, David allows for Absalom, who's been away on his own exile for fear that he would be punished, of course, for his deeds, killing his brother and have to face uh, justice. But he waits. He brings him in. David allows him to come back. And we talked about that two weeks ago in chapter 14. But he's not allowed into the palace, and he's, he's at a distance. And as uh, Pastor Alistair Begg puts it best, Absalom returns from exile unpunished, unforgiven, and unashamed for what has happened. But Absalom is glad, uh, and, and out of all of his virtues, uh, or lack of virtues, his negative virtues, Absalom is one thing. He is patient. He's a patient man who wants to, in, in, you know, to work out a strategy. Absalom is a long game guy, okay? And so he will wait, the, the, he'll wait out time. And now he's beginning to gain Absalom, his, you know, his, his momentum is gaining. He's getting access to more resources. He's gaining some influence. 
And though he has this stain against him, and because of that stain, he's fearful, I won't get the throne. Out of my father's other uh, descendants, I don't know that I will gain the throne and succeed him. Nevertheless, his ambition, Absalom's ambition is growing hot. He wants to look like a future king and judge over Israel. And so like any other uh, leader, celebrity, king, politician, he gets a social media following. And uh, he gets a Range Rover. And uh, he's, he's living large. I mean, he's got, he's got the bling. He's got the entourage, as we're about to find out. Uh, it wasn't a Land Rover, a Range Rover, okay. It was a chariot. But he, he wants his image to look like someone who is of influence. Would you please stand again one more time in deference to God's word? I am going to read the whole of this uh, chapter, or cover the whole of this chapter, but I'm not going to read it all. 2 Samuel 15, hear this. This is the word of God. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man who had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did all to Israel who came to the king for judgments. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant, referring to himself, vowed a vow while I was at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Then the king said to him, Well, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king of Hebron. When Absalom went, 200 men from Jerusalem, who were invited guests, And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering uh, the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gileonite, David's counselor from the city of Galo. And his conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David saw Uh, said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down to ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king desires. So the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all the servants passed by him, and all the Cherahites, and all the uh, Pelahites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed with him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you go on with us? Go back, stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And, I shall t- I, and, and so shall today I make you wander about with us since I know not where 
Go back. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as the Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, and whatever and whether for death or life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Hittite, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook of Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. We'll pause there. This is the word of God. Thanks be to him. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we're asking... Even now, as we break open your word and try to uncover and discover that you'd break open our hearts so that we might uh, hear uh, and also listen and respond and surrender to Jesus. We pray that we might decrease and Christ might increase. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, it used to be uh, hot dogs, hamburgers and things like baseball that could keep Americans unified. Uh, even that seems to be, uh, you know, going by the wayside. But if there was one thing that we all could say pretty confidently that we love, we'd all like to rally around, it's this great theme called winning, right? We like victory. We like champions. We want uh, success. And I'd be curious, I read this article this past week. I'd be curious, it's a little bit of a long quote, but I'd be curious, do you agree? Do you find yourself resonating with the sentiment of the writer here, Marshall Siegel writes, success is a drug of choice among Americans, and it's a slow and subtle killer. I wonder why you want the job you do. There are lots of good motivations, right? I mean, you, may want a, you may want a good job so you can be generous and give to your local church. I like that. Yeah, that's a good motivation, right? Okay, but, but there might be some bad motivations. He goes on to write, there are bad reasons too, though. And no one, and one that is especially sinister and murderous, success at work will play God and make promises to you that it cannot and it will not keep. Success promises to fill the holes in our hearts And if you only ascend this high or accumulate this much, your fears and your insecurities, they'll be resolved once for all. Success promises the love of those around us. They will finally give you the respect and the affection that you crave. Success says it can cover everything wrong about us. It offers esteem, control, and security. Everything we surrender in our sin. It wears the Savior's costume and presents itself the strong, charming, trustworthy hero. But success is a horrible hero and an even worse God. Little g, God. Let me say that last line again. It wears the Savior's costume, presents itself as the strong and charming, trustworthy hero. But success is a horrible hero and and an even worse God. There is only one God. And we see he is in control here of this family, of this country, of this era, just like he's in control of this era and this community and this country and your life and your family. Do you trust him? You know, we have two men largely in view here, a young man and an old man. The young man has a pattern, Absalom, of selfish ambition. We see that. And he trusts himself. 
And he, he wants a new job. <laughs> he wants to be king. The other man is David, an older man, obviously. He has a pattern of faithfulness. Not, 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 not obviously flawlessly, perfectly, but consistently a pattern of faithfulness. He's only king because God pushed him into this job. He appointed him. Unfortunately, at this season of his life, his leadership is weakened. Here are the two headings. They're listed in the order of service just to help our, our, our division of the text and understanding. Obviously, we have Absalom's conspiracy, and the other thing is David's exile. Now, Absalom's conspiracy here, in addition to having an entirely unnecessary chariot, okay, in the streets of Jerusalem, it's almost like the person who buys, you know, the super high-end Lambo just to drive around the busy streets of, you know, South Florida or something. You're like, what, what, what is the point of this? Uh, he gets 50 horses because you need those to go with the chariots. But Absalom thinks, this is what I need. He's worried about his image. He's trying to build a brand. He's trying to gain a following. So he sits at the gates and acts and sets himself up as a, as a, as a wannabe king and judge. And people flock to him. And he shows interest in them. He's like a politician, you know, uh, kissing people and shaking babies or no, what, that's the different way around. The phrase is, politicians are those who kiss babies and shake hands, not shake babies. Uh, what, what is he doing? He's like the consummate celebrity politician who wants to gain. He, he, he's talking about a vision of the future. He's talking about, and he's very handsome, right? Like I said earlier, uh, chapter 14, verse 25 says that he was the most uh, handsome person from head to toe. And his hair grew so fast and it was like this massive, beautiful, flowing, probably black curly fro that he had to cut his hair twice or once a year because it was so heavy. That's going to be part of the downfall, just as a hint. Okay, you know, there's foreshadowing. Even in biblical writing, there's things like irony and, uh, and sarcasm. He looks the part, although he's not concerned about God. He even sounds like his grandfather Saul, right? Who was so much the part of king on the outside, but not like his father David, a man after God's heart. Absalom in these opening verses, uh, like I said, is, is an, he's an influencer. And it's very revelatory that even as he looks towards the future and makes promises about justice as, as he would campaigning, it says that in verse 5, and whenever uh, someone came near to pay homage, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. But he keeps saying to himself, when I become king, this will be great. And people will pay homage to me on a regular basis. What is it that he craves? Verse 6 tells us, then Absalom, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men. I presume with his good looks, some of the women too of Israel. Then, after some time, there's a strategy. He's very patient, verse 7. It tells us that he wants to say to his father, he comes back uh, to his father. It's been a few years now, four years. He comes back, says, I want to go to Hebron. He sounds very pious. I want to make offerings. So would you give me the liberty to go out there? But really, he just wants to go on a journey to go and, and, and plan out this conspiracy, to gain, you know, to send out word and to, to build allegiances and to, do, to plant the seeds uh, even he recruits, verse 12, Ahithophel, who was his father's trusted wise counselor, and gets him to be a co-conspirator. 
Sadly, what becomes evident is that for Absalom, um, the means justify the ends. And he just walks. He, he is a person who views others as a means to an end. It's always a bad thing to, peep, to treat people that way uh, as a vehicle or an obstacle in, way of, in the way of what you want or on the way to get what you want. That's Absalom. But that's inevitable. It's inevitable we treat people like that. Not, not, not just leaders, but people in general. We're bound to do that when we love the praise of others and do not trust God. Absalom is plotting a conspiracy because of his selfish ambition. He cares not for God's kingdom. He gives the impression he does. He doesn't care for God or God's kingdom. Absalom is, cons- is, is conspiring because he wants to grab power and he wants the throne. He exalts himself to try to become king. And aren't you glad? This is where I already want to bring in Jesus. Aren't you glad that we know and serve a living, risen king who came not to be served? He wasn't, he wasn't interested in the flattery of others. That Jesus comes and he is a unique king because he, he, is not, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Well, a lot more can be said about Absalom. And a lot more will uh, in future weeks. But right now I want us to give most of our focus as quickly as I can to David's exile. It's not just David's exile though, it's the king's exile. And I even think that the way that the, the literature is, is, is composed, the narrator has us in verses 14 to 16. The king, the king, the king, by way of emphasis we should look. Why is the king running away? Why doesn't he fight and, and defend? Why does, he not gather, why does he gather his whole household and head off as, as refugees? Well, I think it would be natural to confuse that as only being motivated by fear. I mean, after all, you know, look at verse 13. A messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. The next verse, David says, we got to go. He's, David is being... Uh, reasonable. He instructs the household to depart, but I think this is actually a, a glimpse of the old David, not the, not the defeated passive leader that he has been having to, to navigate the chaos and the consequence of his sins, but the David who early on was a warrior poet who was a man uh, leading people into worship, and he had, he had a plan, and now he has a plan. It doesn't look that way. It doesn't give the appearance right out of the gates, But David actually is not operating out of fear. He is more concerned to step out with a plan of leadership, which is, uh, and I know that sounds strange because it looks like not armies heading out. Whenever they say that he is heading east, well, that's the only way to go in many respects, past into that valley, out of the city, out of the valley of Kidron, across uh, the outside the Jordan into foreign uh, lands. It may seem like they don't look like armies. It's like refugees. Uh, you know, this is, this is very sad. David is skilled and he's very experienced uh, surviving in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to be in waiting uh, in exile. But I think that he has a plan. He wants to leave not out of fear, but because he doesn't want to bring the city to desolation and ruin. He, he, he's going to, to wait this out and see what God would, would gain and, and guide him to. He is a sensible rational man. Plus, he's deeply content to see God's plan and not his own selfish ambition to say, I'm going to stay here no matter what. 
He says to Zadok, this is not part of the, uh, the portion that I read, but he says to one of the priests, uh, there were two priests that brought the ark of God out with him. And he says, as much as I care about the furniture of God, what I really care about and need is the favor of God. You guys appreciate you bringing it out. You can read that uh, in the verses following. He says, you go back with the ark. And as a result of that, they would become, it was really more of like a priestly espionage. You know, he is sending in people to go and grab intel and to be part of the household and part of the palace and the worship there to find out what Absalom is doing. In fact, I'll, let me just read why he, what he tells him in verse 25 and verse 26. He says, carry it on back. The king said to Zedek, carry the ark back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, well, then he will bring me back. God will. And he will let me see both it, that's the ark, and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him, God, do with me what seems good to him. Sure, David has feelings. David has desires. And that's part of the reason that he's grieving. David is, like I said, he's skilled and experienced in survival in the wilderness. But don't think that David is passive. He fully trusts in the sovereign power and plan of God. But he's also strategic. Like I said, he's, there's other places here that it alludes to in the chapter that he gains folks that are going to go back and try to... Uh, to, to uh, you know, find out more and be spies. Verse 31 in particular, he's bewildered that his father's trust, that his trusted counselor, Ahithophel, is now with his son as a co-conspirator. And what does he do? In verse 31, uh, like I said, I didn't read this, but it's important to look at. He told, to, and it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, here's his prayer. This is what he cries out. His instinct isn't to, to rage or plot or scheme or grab or, or to, to just grind his teeth. He cries out to God. This is what he says to God. Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Because Absalom, if he, if he listens, which he didn't, but if he were to listen, it will, it will go well for him and it'll all go down in ruin. So he, he, he cries out and God provides a friend. He feels betrayed. Not only by his son, but also this trusted counselor. And so what does he say? God, help me. And what does God do? Immediately, God answers this prayer in verse 32. David is up on the Mount of Olives. He's, uh, he's worshiping God. And it says, behold, while he was there at the summit, worshiping God, behold, Hushai, the archite, came out to meet him. And, and what does David say? Hey, listen, same with you, man. It's not going to help me for you to stay with me. Go back, go, go, go back and, and be part of, 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 you know, the spies and, and figure out uh, the strategy going forward and test and discern what God might do. David prays and David plans. David knows that God is not operating in a vacuum, that God ordains both the means and the ends. David is willing to have uh, a plan and he would like to be a part of that plan, but ultimately he trusts God. How about you? Did you resonate? Going back to our opening quote, I, whether it's in the workplace or in comparison to other parents or other, uh, you know, people in your life that you, you envy and or what is, what is, what is success? What is ambition? What is your ambition? 
Who do you serve? What do you serve? What do the people who know you and love you most say you love and serve? Before I press in on that question a little bit more, I just briefly want to draw your attention to one figure that's here in the text, in the narrative, who is uh, not a Jew, but a Gentile. And he has a unique name. I, I, I distinctly remember it was my sophomore year of college. It was the first time I ever met someone who was a peer who also had the name Troy. He was this little guy. His name is Troy McCoy, but he was playing Division I football. Um, I just thought, what were his parents thinking? You know, Troy McCoy. I never liked the name Troy. Then they gave him Troy McCoy. They knew he'd have that name. It's not like his married name. I mean, all these people who lived in ancient Near East, they would have been known by the people that they lived with. So here we have this guy, Ittai the Hittite. What? Don't you know you're going to be named after your tribe or your dad? You know, this is, uh, this is an interesting name. Ittai the Hittite. Who's one of your life, you know, long heroes? Well, it ought to be Ittai the Hittite. Why is that? Well, let's look for a moment. David says to him, just to rewind in verse 10 of our text, into verse 11. He's he's making his way out of the city, and what does he find? Uh, he sent the he sent not not verse uh, not verse ten but further down uh, when we, when he sees uh, Ittai the Hittite uh, he says to him listen um, the king said to Ittai verse nineteen the Hittite why do you also go with us go back to the king you're a foreigner an exile from home uh, you, you you just arrived here you're you're you don't need to follow us we don't even know where we're going but what does he say to him in response but Ittai this is a beautiful testimony of faith. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king shall be, whether for death or life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then and pass on. Does that at all sound familiar? It should. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, four chapters might be a great read on a rainy day. But what happens with Ruth, the Moabite, also a woman not part of, the, not part of God's covenant community, not part of the, not part of the blessed uh, chosen people, a Moabite. She is a grieving young widow, and her mother-in-law is a grieving widow. And they make their way to the border, not heading east, heading west into the promised land. And, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, says, you go on back. And Ruth says, I can't, and I won't. And don't try to dissuade me, because... Wherever you go, I'm going to be there. Your land, my land. Your people, my people. Your God will be my God. And she takes a a tremendous step of faith to trust in God's promise. These are pictures and illustrations of steps of faith from people who are not part of Israel and the promise. And yet they are in the end part of the promise and the covenant community because they are Faithful. Even when for Ittai, the, 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 the price is high, the cost is high, he is swearing by the Lord. David is not confident, and David is not presumptuous about success. David is confident in the Lord God, the, the, the divine name, the covenant name Yahweh. That is the issue all along. Fidelity 
and not success is the issue. You don't, let me say this, and, and I want you to hear it. We don't measure, we do not measure fidelity with success. Yes, you know, obviously, sometimes God does choose to bless fidelity with success. And then sometimes he does not, at least as far as we can tell in this life. For the short term, it doesn't always look like God honors fidelity with success. What is the cost of following God? What is the cost of discipleship for you, for me? What does allegiance to the king look like even when you face opposition, the enemies from without? And what does discipleship and following God look like when you face selfish ambition, the enemy from within? God says, wait. God says, I have some suffering for you. But that's only so that the real things, the important things can come into focus. And boy, does it ever for David at this moment. Sometimes this life as Christ followers means that we must trust God with both a prayer and a plan. It's not passive. David's not passive. We needn't be passive. But it does mean that we have to have the weight and the weight. Do you know what I mean? The weight and the weight. The W-E-I-G-H-T, weight of grief and sorrow. And the W-A-I-T of patience. The weight and the weight. David is a 70-year-old king walking up Mount Olives. Uh, the Mount of Olives, weeping. His head is bent low. It's not working out the way he wanted it to. Why is he crying? Why is his head covered? Why is everyone else gathered around him? Why is he not raging in bitterness and revenge for his own son, treating him like garbage? This is what I get thanks for? He's content. His ambition is to see and to serve the true king which David knows is Yahweh. David holds the world loosely and its measure of success. He sets aside his ambition and and Absalom loves and craves the praise of men. And he wants success and ambition so he can win in people's eyes. David, on the other hand, loves God. First John 2 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. That doesn't mean you can't love scallops. Everybody loves scallops. If anyone, it's it's just saying the the world as a system apart from the love of God. The people who love the things of the creation against and above the creator. That's worldliness. This is what the Bible says in 1 John. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Folks, David is not grieving because it just looks like success is done for him. He leaves that in God's hands, right? He's, he's you know, if God... Go check it out. Here's my plan. Here's my prayer. But it's up to God. Whatever pleases him, this we will do. David, if you want to know David's real heart in this matter, go read Psalm 3. 
In addition to Ruth, the four chapters there, Psalm 3 is a short psalm. And it was written literally at this very moment that David was in exile running from his own son. He is grieving because it is his own son. He's grieving because he's been betrayed by a family member and a trusted counselor. And so much of the disaster that comes downstream, he's also grieving because David knows that some of this mess is David's fault. David is grieving the consequences of his own sin. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a dark day for David. But it's a shadow of something that would happen about a thousand years later, also in the Mount of Olives with Jesus of Nazareth. Folks, I want to end here, as I typically do, that our hope and our refuge should be in the person and the, the person and the work of him who also walked and wept and prayed and was obedient. Yes, David suffered because of his own choices, his own sins. Jesus came and Jesus suffered, but it was not because of his choices. He was perfect. He suffered for our sin. He wept and grieved outside the city on a shameful cross because we needed a savior and we couldn't fix, redeem, or save ourselves. Success, safety, comfort. Boy, you're speaking my language. Success, safety, comfort is not our hope. Our hope is in the God who is our salvation. We are not our savior. God is. And David, while he was in this exile, at the very close of that psalm, I encourage you to read. Psalm 3 says this in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Friends, from first to last. Evaluate. You know, evaluate. Take inventory. What is it that obscures it? What is the craving for success and ambition? What does it mean to take bold steps of faith? Because from first to last, we cannot save ourselves. We must surrender to and trust in the only Savior who is the risen Savior, King Jesus. We're going to pray now to him. And we'll close. And I want to encourage you to follow along as I close our prayer. We'll, we'll also take up the words of our Lord Jesus in a moment. Father, right now, we praise you that you're the almighty and we ask that you would send Holy Spirit to be a comforter, a counselor, a guide, the one who would compel us to faith, hope, love, and good deeds. We pray that you would restrain evil in the world. I pray that you would comfort those, Lord, who even now are, are just facing unimaginable grief and sorrow, the temptation towards bitterness and revenge. And we think of people in, in desolate, sad places in Israel and Palestine. We pray for justice and peace. We pray for the hearts of those who plan and desire evil, that you would soften them and restrain evil. We pray for leaders in the world, that you would grant to them humility and, and wisdom. Please restrain our own evil thoughts and words and deeds in our own lives and relationships. Lord, we we pray for the community of Lewiston, Maine. We pray that you would 
meet some people right now who are grieving way beyond what we could imagine. We ask for you especially to bless Free Grace Presbyterian Church, our sister congregation and Pastor Almquist there, that you would give them boldness and love and compassion for their community as they seek to to grieve alongside of people they want to comfort. Lord, help our congregation, those who are looking for healing and relationship, for hope in relationship, for people who are facing uh, even now procedures and the prospects of diagnoses, people in our church that are grieving, the loss of family, those who are looking for a change in direction, for new work. Lord, I pray you'd give us contentment, but I pray you'd bring change if it's your will. Lord, we pray that you would create a stirring, even revival for the hearing and the reading and the preaching of your word in our community. Would you raise up more churches and more laborers here on the South Shore? I pray especially with thanks for Mayflower Congregational Church. I pray that you bless Pastor Anton Brown and their leadership, their efforts, their initiatives, their worship and their witness. Encourage them. Remind us all, Lord, of the gospel this week, the good news of the love and the forgiveness that's found uniquely in Jesus. Even now, praying in his name as he taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.